The Veterans Affairs Department and other agencies have restored to federal employee unions so-called official time. That is the right to do union business during regular working hours. Official time was sharply curtailed during the Trump administration. Now a Republican-backed bill in the House would eliminate official time. It's called the Do Your Job Act of 2021. Good idea or bad? For one view and the third in our series, Federal Unions for Better or Worse, we turn to the vice president of the National Right to Work Committee, Greg Murad. Mr. Murad, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. So what is your view of this? Good idea or bad idea, understanding that your organization tends to try to balance the power between labor and industry with respect to certifying unions in the first place? Yeah, our primary interest as an organization is making sure that individuals have the right to decide for themselves whether a union gets their money and gets their support. And uh, ultimately, we'd like to see uh, people free to decide for themselves whether to work under a union contract. At the federal level, yeah, we absolutely think this bill is a great idea. There is no reason in the world tax dollars should be spent paying for union activities. Tax dollars should be spent on the services those dollars were intended and appropriated for. And that is the mission of the various agencies and organizations of the federal government, not the mission of the union that exists in those places. As a practical matter, though, in a given agency, if you have... 10, 20, 30, in the case of Veterans Affairs, maybe 150,000 unionized employees. In the grand scheme of things, as a percentage of hours spent, is it worth arguing over, given the size of the agency and the overall budget? Well, the last year that I have numbers for, unions racked up a staggering 3.6 million hours of official time in 2016 at a total cost to the taxpayers of $177 million. How big a percentage that is of the entire uh, multi-trillion dollar federal budget is not really relevant to me. That is $177 million of taxpayer money that is just being gifted to the unions. And so this bill then would eliminate the idea of official time altogether. And what should the unions do then in that case if that were to happen? How would they get their work done? Or would they have to do it nights and weekends? Well, no, they don't have to do it nights and weekends, but they do have to go off the federal clock when they do it. And so it's a pretty simple arrangement, really. Uh, The union pays them for the time they spend doing union work, and the taxpayers pay them for the time they spend doing taxpayer work. And the systems are certainly flexible enough to let a guy clock out for a half a day if he needs to spend a half a day doing union work. Got it. And let's broaden the question, because we are doing a series on this very question of the efficacy or utility of unions in the public sector in the first place. They've been around since, I guess, the Kennedy administration at the federal level, and they can't so far bargain on wages and benefits. That's a standard thing, regardless of whether you're in a union or not. Do they have a place in the public sector, though? I think people still ask that question, regardless of how much history there is there. Yeah, and they should ask that question. Federal workers have a First Amendment right to association. They can create unions, they can form unions, but there is really no place for a union to have any official status with the government that its employees work for. They should not be bargaining a contract. They should not be uh, adjudicating grievances. They should have no more standing than any other taxpayer because it is the government, and it is the public purse, and no private organization, uh, not even a private organization consisting of the employees of that government, should have more say over how the public purse is spent than anybody else. 
We're speaking with Greg Murad. He is vice president of the National Right to Work Committee. And is there a conflict of interest, do you feel, in the non-union managers and I guess the elected officials when dealing with federal unions? Because I'll just put it this way. Unions tend to vote one party over another. And so the party that favors a union, do they have a conflict of interest versus their responsibility to the public that they represent and that hired them? Absolutely, and especially in the case where the union is bargaining, and as it is in many states and localities, not so much at the federal level. The union's bosses have bragged about how they elect their own bosses, and then they get to sit on both sides of the bargaining table fleecing the taxpayers. It's an absolute conflict of interest when you're elected with union support, and then you're supposedly having to negotiate with the union over how much their people are going to get paid, and therefore how much how much dues the union gets in order to support your next election. There's no doubt that's a conflict of interest. Yes, because in some of the highly unionized states, the actuarial liabilities that they have for union benefits and pensions are really greater than the revenue the state can generate when the bill comes due. That's exactly right, and it's worse than that. The normal ERISA standards don't apply. Those, some of those pensions have been allowed to pretend that they're going to get 8% rates of return in perpetuity. So even the numbers they have that are bad are, don't even tell you how bad it is in many cases. It's an absolute train wreck out there, which is part of why in the last supposed COVID stimulus bill, most of which money was not for COVID stimulus, they were giving hundreds of billions of dollars to those irresponsible states with those unfunded, bloated union pensions negotiated by politicians elected by unions across a bargaining table with the unions that elected them, fleecing the taxpayers, going into unsustainable debt, and then coming to the rest of us in the responsible states saying we need a federal tax bailout. And getting back to the federal unions, which don't bargain over pay and benefits, although that has been raised recently, that would seem to be an untenable situation given the fact that they're cheek by jowl with large workforces that are not unionized, that are just under the general schedule system. Yeah, it's a terrible idea, letting those unions bargain for pay or working conditions or anything else. It is absolutely unacceptable to let those unions have more power over the spending of the public purse than the Congress does. It's an absurd idea. And given the role of unions as they stand now in federal agencies, how would you alter it to make it more, I don't know, reasonable or – because this goes back and forth between administrations, Republican and Democrat, to deal with the unions as equal partners in the running of the agency. On the Democratic side and on the Republican side, they tend to try to push them away and deal directly with employees without going through the union. What should it be there? There's some consistency. Yeah, if I were making the policy, uh, the unions of employees would be able to collect dues money from their voluntary employees who wanted to give dues money voluntarily. They would able to be able to spend that money lobbying the government like anybody else can, but that's it. They wouldn't be negotiating anything. They wouldn't be uh, interfering in the hiring and firing process. Uh, they wouldn't be interfering in the discipline process. They would simply be another lobbyist, another uh, agency, one among many. Greg Murad is vice president of the National Right to Work Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to chat with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we conclude the series with a decidedly pro-union view when we hear from the NTEU national president, Tony Reardon. Check off the Federal Drive on your phone. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision, and I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.